180,000 doctors. That's not how many are currently practicing. It's how many will be short in less time than it takes a child to go from elementary school to high school. It's a shocking number, especially when so many of us already feel like we aren't getting adequate care now. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Dr. Ann Hester. Dr. Hester has roughly 30 years of experience in both medical practice and in empowering patients to get the most out of a very confusing and often one-sided system that we all have to work through. How can you be a better patient? How can you make sure your primary care physician hears your concerns? How can you skip all the expensive procedures and still root out the problem? All this and more in the next half hour. Let's not be late to our doctor's appointment today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ann Hester. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself a bit for the audience? So again, my name is Dr. Ann Hester. I am a board-certified internist. I practice close to 30 years, and I have a real passion for empowering people, empowering them to optimize their health care, lower their bills, and just get the best out of the medical system that they possibly can. Yeah. And what kind of got you into that? Did you see like a gap in the field? When I was a third year medical student and we were grasping at straws to have time to do something other than study, um, I started writing my first book on empowerment because I saw so many cases of people suffering and dying unnecessarily. And it's just really struck me decades ago. And I knew back then a lot of people were dying and suffering unnecessarily. They just did not have the important information that they needed to prevent getting these diseases. And even after they got them, they didn't necessarily have to die from them, but they did not know how to optimize their care did not know how to protect themselves at home. There were so many voids that I just felt a need to start helping people understand a variety of aspects, whether it was how to improve their diabetes, how to lower the blood pressure, decrease the risk of uh, heart disease, get screened for cancer, all sorts of things. I'm, I'm an internist. So we run the gamut from depression to terminal cancer, to rashes, everything is involved in internal medicine. So there was just so much need. And that's how I got started doing this. Yeah. And do you see this need increasing over the years you've been practicing or is it kind of leveling out? I see a different need now. Whereas before people did not understand high blood pressure, diabetes and other things, and now they're starting to understand it, there's still this tremendous void 
a gap between the way doctors think and the way patients think. And that results in a lot of unnecessary follow-up visits, tests, procedures, medications that were given as a trial that really didn't work because the diagnosis was not correct. I see such a tremendous waste in the healthcare system. Um, It's staggering. And it's like the patients are often like a deer in the headlights. They don't know what to ask. They don't know what to expect. They don't know how to partner in their care because we have not had adequate training uh, applied to them. We've had a very paternalistic healthcare system and the doctors would say, this is what you do. And the patients would say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And they may leave the office and never come back, may do it, may not. And it, it doesn't make any sense. There needs to be a meeting of the mind so we can work together as a team to optimize the care for everybody. So that's a lot of what I see now. Yeah, this seems like one of those things where you almost need training in order to do it right. And we don't receive training, you know, in public education. There's no like, and this is how you go to a doctor's appointment and ask appropriate questions and do follow up. Exactly. I I often use the uh, saying, we have medical school. Nurses have nursing school. Patients don't have a patient school. And so we know what we're looking for, but patients don't know. And that is a huge issue and it results in delayed diagnoses, a lot of unnecessary money spent. And we're looking at a predicted shortage of up to 124,000 doctors in 11 years. That's according to the American Association of Medical Colleges. This is the organization that is involved in med school applications and a lot of things, and they know what to expect. They know what our supply is going to be. If you consider the unmet needs of people in rural America and certain urban areas. And if you were to say, okay, they're going to get the same level of care that people who have insurance get now, this deficit could be higher than 180,000 doctors. Now, just imagine what healthcare could be like in 11 years if we're short 180,000 doctors. You think that we have short visits now stay tuned. And so that's why it's even more important for people to understand that you don't have to have chronic illnesses. You don't have to have diabetes, high blood pressure, lupus, or anything, but you are going to end up in a doctor's office or an ER at some point, whether it is a bad flu, bronchitis, stomach pain, you're going to go see a doctor. And so it behooves us all to know how to expedite our diagnoses by learning some basic things, such as how to communicate with doctors. For instance, up until January of this year, there were eight elements. We call them the elements of the HPI or history of present illness. And basically that means when you go to see a doctor, you have an acute illness, what brought you there? What are your symptoms? When do they start? Explain it to me. But there are eight elements and these are important. And I suggest that the listeners get out a pencil or their tablet or something and write these down. The first one is the context. If you can tell the doctor the context, that will be very helpful. For instance, if you say, doc, I have low back pain. It started last week. That's one thing. If you say, doc, I have lower back pain that started last week, 
after I lifted a heavy sofa. The doctor's not going to go looking for cancer in your back. He's going to be focused on the muscles in your back. If you say, I have chest pain, that is a burning sensation. He's going to be more likely to think about reflux or heartburn. Then if you say, Doc, I have this squeezing chest pain, he might be more focused on a heart attack. So we have character and we have the context location. I have belly pain. That doesn't mean much. You have a lot of organs in your abdominal area. If it's in the upper right abdomen, the doctor may be concerned about the gallbladder, the liver, maybe the pancreas. If you say it's the right lower region, he may look at possible appendicitis. And if you're a woman, may look at problems with your ovaries. If you say it is in the upper mid-abdomen, he may think about the pancreas or the stomach. So be specific when you complain of issues. If you say, I have chest pain and it's you know, a tight squeezing pain and it happens to be in my upper right chest near my shoulder, he's not going to be as concerned about a heart attack as if you say it's in the mid chest or it's on the left side. So location matters. Associated signs and symptoms. If you have chest pain and you say, and by the way, I break out in a sweat with chest pain, he's going to be worried about your heart. If you say I have abdominal pain and I have diarrhea with the abdominal pain, he's going to be more, looking more along the lines of something like gastroenteritis or something like that and not so much gallbladder problems. And then we have modifying factors. What makes it better? What makes it worse? If you say, I take one acetaminophen and my headache goes away, that's very different from I've tried acetaminophen every four hours and I take a leave and I lie down in a dark room. Nothing helps. It keeps getting worse. That says a lot as well. And so in addition to that, the timing and duration, each time it occurs, does it last a few seconds, minutes, or hours? I have this belly pain in my upper right abdomen, and each time it comes, it lasts a couple of hours. That says something to the doctor. The duration, how long have you endured the problem? I've had this belly pain off and on for three months. That's the duration, three months. And each time it occurs, it's a couple of hours. That's the timing. So we're looking at the context, the character, the location. Something else is the severity. Rated on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being excruciating, 1 being mild. I had a patient who once told me, my pain is a 10. He was texting, watching TV. That's not a 10. A 10 is a woman giving childbirth or you're in a car wreck and you broke three bones. That's excruciating. Uh, so when you talk to the doctor, try to be as concise as you can be, and that will help him have more confidence in what you're saying. If you're sitting reading a magazine when he walks in and you say, my pain is a 10 over 10, that's a red flag. This person really doesn't understand what I'm talking about. If you say it's a four or five over 10, and you're reading a magazine, that is more appropriate. So context, character, location the severity, timing, associated signs and symptoms, duration, 
modifying factors. What I tell people, in addition to writing them down, take the first letter of every word or phrase and make a mnemonic that is meaningful to you. So I can prepare to walk into the office, give a one minute quote unquote elevator speech that has all those eight bullet points. And that will help the doctor pinpoint what it is and what it is not, which means fewer tests, fewer procedures, quicker diagnosis, fewer drugs that you don't need that can cause side effects. And so that is how you can pull together a very concise, power-packed speech to give to your doctor in no time. And with this impending shortage, that is going to be crucial, that you prioritize your concerns and that you communicate to the doctor in a way that will help him help you quickly. Yeah, you're really making the most of these appointments because some of these appointments, you know, are 15 minutes. I believe that's pretty standard. It's like if you can get the bulk of the information out in the first minute you're with your doctor, that yeah. gives you the other, you know, 90% of the time, 90 plus percent mm-hmm. to actually ask follow-up questions and get the appropriate tests done. Absolutely. So it's really critical when you're talking 180,000 doctors and a lot of people might think like, oh, well, we're going to be a little short. No. Like, okay. Well, each one of those doctors would probably see, you know, a thousand plus patients every year. Like now you're talking about 180 million people that potentially don't have health care, you know, coverage with a doctor anymore. They're not seeing anyone. And that's a pretty dramatic jump. In that statistic, just using the 124,000, they estimate there may be 48,000 primary care doctors that we don't have. So we're close to 48 states. So just imagine a thousand fewer primary care doctors in your state, a thousand. That is huge. So just imagine how long it's going to take you to get an appointment. A follow-up appointment is going to be hard. A new patient visit, that's scary to think about. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people say now, today, in 2023, that they're having a hard time finding a new doctor. Absolutely. That's been going on a while. This is not going to be all of a sudden we're short of doctors. The waves of this tsunami are already crashing on our shores, and we're just not ready. Um, You know, it, it may take quite a while to get in to see a doctor even today, And when you walk in to see the doctor, don't assume you have 15 minutes. You might have a 15-minute slot, but all of that is probably not going to be face-to-face because the doctor has to document. The doctor may be called out of the office. Um, There are so many things that go on during the day, and the doctor may be double-booked. And I've known doctors who said, you know, I see 30, 40 people in a day. Those are like five-minute visits. And so you may be in and out, you know, so fast your head spins. So be prepared so you can get the most out of your visit and you don't have to keep coming back because the doctor says, I'm not sure what's going on, ordered and orders these tests and says, come back to see me in two weeks. That's not what you want. You want the diagnosis the first time, if at all possible. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, with these absences, with these, you know, doctors that we just don't have, do we really have the luxury before we see a doctor of trying to find the right doctor for us, or should we just, you know, find a primary care doctor and, you know, see through that first meeting if this is right for us? 
I would say you want somebody you're going to feel comfortable with. But that being said, what I, I suggest is first look at your insurance um, panel if you have insurance and if there's a panel and look at what is important to you. Do you want the person to have after hours appointments, Saturday appointments, televisits? You rank your priorities and you list the doctors that are possibilities and also go online to see the reviews, ask friends and family members who is good to see. And then you rank a few doctors and you make some calls, get in to see a doctor. And if your first, the best you can do is get an appointment with your number one choice three months out and you want to see somebody else, by all means, go ahead and get on those books. You can always cancel appointments in a reasonable period of time without any kind of penalty. But if you know you want to get in to see somebody soon, go ahead and make an appointment to see somebody who's available. But also remember, if it's something acute like bronchitis or the flu, you can go to after hours urgent care centers. Uh, some of them even have the ability to see primary care doctors there. But for acute visits, there are definitely options, but those options are going to be more difficult as we are running fewer, fewer, fewer doctors. So the goal is to get somebody you're going to connect with. But if you don't connect with that person, just keep trying until you find somebody. But the most important thing is get your medical needs met in a timely manner. That's the first priority. And the second priority is that warm, cozy feeling. Well, and this is an interesting situation, I guess, for us in the U.S., and I know you're not, you know, working in the health insurance field, but do you think health insurance is going to have to shift over time because of this doctor shortage? Are we going to start seeing health insurances opening up their networks a little more, or are they still going to, you think, be so restricted to, you know, very fine points where it says like, yes, you can see this one facility in your town, otherwise the next one is 20 miles away. I think things are in flux and it's more um, than one issue that will go into a, an insurance company making that decision. For instance, if that insurance company um, is in a financial pickle and by opening it up, um, it's going to cost them more, the balance may lean toward not opening it up. Whereas if they're able to negotiate good contracts with more providers and it's um, better for them that the insured members are happier to have larger panels and it makes them more competitive, then the pendulum may shift the other way. So it would be multifactorial um, regarding those decisions, I would assume. That's one of those things we we talk about here in the U.S. that like I've had a lot of audience members kind of say like, I don't understand health insurance because it seems really goofy. Like you pay for this thing, even if you don't use it. Mm-hmm. And then if you do use it, you pay extra. <laughs> and then sometimes it doesn't cover you, even though you do have it and you do pay for it, like you're not covered for certain things. That is true, that that the health insurance industry um, is very complicated. And we just need to all try to work together as one to optimize the system. And there's so much waste in the system now. And that's not on one end. It is due to a lot of complexities 
But if we can figure out a way to minimize waste and optimize care, that is going to be a win-win. Yeah. So we've, you know, we found our doctor or a doctor, at least for the time being, we've done our prep work. We've seen the doctor. They have kind of given us our instructions. Is there anything we should be doing after these appointments other than just like looking at our instructions and following those? I like to tell people to develop a medical record. You may have an insurance portal and you can go on and you see all your test results. And then a couple of months later, you have a different insurance company. Are you able to get those records? If you've been uh, through several different doctors and insurance companies in six, 12 months, or even a few years, how do you have everything together in one place? So when you go to see a new doctor, he doesn't have to get records from A, B, C, D, and E. So I suggest that everybody make a personal copy of health records and don't walk into the doctor's office with three inches of medical records. They're not going to have the time to read them anytime soon. Put everything together. On my website, patientempowerment101.com, if you scroll to the bottom, there is a free downloadable record. So all you have to do is download it, just fill in the blanks, your personal medical history, your drug allergies, your um, your medications you're taking, the variety of things. If you fill that in, so you print it, you turn it over, you print the other side. So in one document, you'll have a front and back side. You can have a tremendous amount of information on that one sheet of paper. You fold it, you put it in your wallet. If you're out shopping, you end up in the emergency room, you pull it out, voila, the doctor has everything he needs to know, the most important things. So that is the basic information. You can also certainly get apps. You can... Uh, I do recommend that people uh, just get a three-ring binder and these separators. And just like a doctor, our old-fashioned records, one section, medical problems. Don't just write, I have some kidney problem. Ask the specific name of each diagnosis. That will enable you to research your diagnosis understand more what you should expect, the prognosis, the long-term issues, and all of those things. So you need to document your diagnoses. Another tab could be your medications. You take this drug this often. This is the dosage prescribed by this doctor for this reason. You stopped it because of this. You have your drug allergies. I'm allergic to things. People often say, I'm allergic to penicillin. Well, a woman may say that because she gets a yeast infection. That's a side effect. It's not a true drug allergy. And if you have a condition that a, a drug similar to penicillin is the first line agent, you don't want the doctor to forego that because he's concerned of a life-threatening reaction. When I take penicillin or amoxicillin, I get a yeast infection. What is the adverse reaction, write that down. So when a doctor sees that, like, oh, that's not an allergy, I can give you this drug safely. Have a section for your family history. This relative developed this disease at this age. A 90-year-old father who had a heart attack is not going to concern a physician. A 40-year-old father who had a heart attack is going to concern a physician. So your family history is important. Your surgical history People sometimes forget their surgeries. That's for real. 
uh, you may see a surgical scar. What was the surgery? Well, uh, I think it was this. I'm not sure. I think I had my ovaries removed with hysterectomy. I don't really know. Know exactly the surgeries you had, the hospital, the doctor, the year. So over time, you can develop your own personal uh, medical record. And so when you go from doctor to doctor, you move to the other side of the country, you go in to see a new doctor, you pull this out. The doctor has all the vital information he needs right there. Hospitalizations are another uh, important thing. And so it is very important for people to start tracking their history. And if you have kids, do the same thing for your children. If you're a caregiver for parents, do the same thing for them because over time, having that information handy can literally save a life. Certainly. And I mean, you're building, like you said, you know, not only your records now, but records that can be used by your kids, by your grandkids as Absolutely. it develops like quite a long timeline that says like, okay, in your family history, I'm seeing a lot of heart attacks at a fairly exactly. young age. Absolutely. And that's profound. And that will also help a doctor focus in on certain things and maybe look for things that he wouldn't have otherwise look for, uh, find risk factors and start doing things to modify those risk factors before you end up with a heart attack. So is there any really common terminology that you see just pop up on patient charts really regularly? I know I have seen some pretty odd ones that, uh, you know, showed up on my, my post handout. And I look at them and I'm like, oh, I don't know what this is. And then I look it up and I'm like, oh, that's the medical term for a runny nose. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, there are some certain things that people need to know about hemoglobin and hematocrit. Those things deal with your red blood cells. If you're anemic, you have a low hemoglobin and low hematocrit. Uh, so your doctor may talk about that. Also, the creatinine. It is the major blood test for your kidney function. And so it's very common for doctors to forget that we once were quote unquote civilians. We didn't know what these terms mean and rattle off these terms in the middle of a conversation. And patients often don't want to stop them and admit, hey, I don't know what that means. Um, so there are terms, the um, BMP, the basic metabolic panel, but that's the chemistry panel. CMP, the comprehensive metabolic panel. That's another more detailed chemistry panel. That's what you talk about when you talk about routine blood work. CBC deals with the hemoglobin and the hematocrit plus the white blood cell count, which deals with inflammation, infection, and so forth, plus the platelets. They're not true cells, but they impact your ability to clot. Like if you cut yourself, your platelets are very low, you're going to keep bleeding. So um, those are things, your thyroid, thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, that's a test that is very frequently obtained just to, to check your thyroid level, which is the thyroid is the gland in your neck. Um, your liver function tests just deal with blood tests dealing with your liver. And so all of those things are quite important. Uh, in, in the book, my latest book, Patient Empowerment 101, More Than a Book is an Adventure, I actually have a glossary of a ton of terms because people really are not familiar with them. And it's good to know if the doctor writes down, hey, I'm going to get an echo. What does that mean? The EKG, you know, people typically know what that means. But vocabulary 
is essential. And I actually devoted a whole appendix to that in my book, just so people would understand what we're talking about when we talk to them. Yeah, I think otherwise, you know, we get a blood test done and you're like, I'm about to spend a lot of time Googling this and then exactly seeing, seeing if the, the range is good and what it means if I'm at the low end of normal versus mm-hmm. just below the low end of normal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So people, that's another thing that's important is just the common terms. And if the doctor ever says something you don't understand, stop him. You can respectfully stop him and say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't understand that term. Can you explain it to me? Write it down. Ask him to spell it, ask the nurse or the medical assistant or whoever's with you to explain it or spell it so you can learn more about it on your own. But this is your body. If the mechanic said, you know, I'm getting ready to charge you $1,000 for your car, like, wait, what? What are you doing? Tell me exactly what I'm paying for. This is your life. This is your body. You deserve to know exactly what's going on. And so you need to take it seriously. Don't be intimidated by doctors. You know, we didn't always go to medical school. We're going to be patients just like you. I mean, we are all have a human body and we all deserve a high level of care delivered in a manner that we can understand what's going on and we can optimize our care. Absolutely. And you, as you said, you not only you know, wrote a book about this, you've done quite a few other things as well to really help, you know, patient advocacy here. Yes, it it is amazing. Um, you know, I, I, I'll never forget, um, I think I was probably a third or fourth year medical student, how I had to tell a family member that um, a relative died. It was like the mom. And she just fell out in the hospital on, in the hallway, just screaming, you know, it is, there, there are certain things in life that you experience that you never forget. And there's so much information there. It makes no sense for so many people to suffer and die when we know what we can do to prevent that. Uh, in addition to the patient empowerment one-on-one book, I recently launched patient world which is kind of like a medical Udemy. People can enroll and take courses taught by experts in a very down-to-earth manner. Um, The world's only interventional cardiologist, who's also a professional chef and culinary medicine professor, his name is Chef Dr. Mike. He does the course explaining coronary disease, the number one killer in this country. He goes through all sorts of aspects of coronary disease, from the symptoms, what you need to look for, what to do. You know, I have a, a, a doctor, Dr. Seidelman. She's board certified in lifestyle medicine. She explains the six pillars of lifestyle medicine that we now know can treat, prevent, or reverse diseases. And so those are just a couple of people, a uh, couple of courses. I do a course on the patient empowerment. So the variety of courses New courses are being added regularly. I plan to release another one this evening um, by Jackie Gethner, a massage therapist who helps people as they grow older um, do things to relieve stress and just make life, you know, just better for themselves. And so, you know, there there is an unlimited number of things that need to be done. 
And we can do these. We can put a person on the moon. Surely we can optimize the healthcare. As much as we spend on healthcare in America, it's shocking that we are not toward the top in outcomes. You know, America is not, you know, number one or two as far as the best outcomes for our people. And we can do better and we should do better. Yeah, I've I've certainly seen a couple of those uh, studies that have been done and they're like, it's not even just one or two. Some of those have us quite low. Exactly. Compared to at least first world countries. Exactly. And look at all the money we spend. So we spend a ton of money, but we're still suffering and dying at a rate higher than countries that don't spend anywhere near as much money. So there's the disconnect. There certainly is. And I think this has been, you know, very educational for people and hopefully they get a lot out of this and they can check out, you know, your book or your courses if they're looking to learn more. Certainly. I appreciate your time immensely. Is there any kind of advice you like to leave people with just, you know, when you only have a brief period of time with them, like we do today, is there mm-hmm. anything you like to leave them on? There are a few things. Um, number one, a lot of diseases that were once fatal are preventable, treatable, curable. You need to be proactive in your health. Don't just wait to go to see the doctor to get a bad diagnosis. Learn what you can do to live a healthy lifestyle so you will minimize your chances of developing these these diseases. That's number one. Number two, be prepared for all doctor's visits. Use those eight elements that I gave you prioritize your concerns, go to patientempowerment101.com, scroll to the bottom, print off that one pager so you can have your own medical record with you at any time. Ask questions. This is your life. You deserve to understand what's going on. And if you have questions, keep asking and be specific. Write down the names of all of your conditions and write down your questions before you go to see your doctor. So realize you only have one body, you only have one life. Prepare to keep your body healthy. If you develop a condition, learn all you can about optimizing your care. And if you're not happy with what you're getting from a doctor, get a second opinion. You're entitled to it. Fantastic advice. Dr. Ann Hester, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you so much. Not to be alarmist because there's no point in panicking now, but the impact of this shortage could become quite a challenge that we will all have to overcome one day. So why not take the time right now to figure out your role as a patient? Anne just gave us a very easy path for you to do so, and it could protect not only you, but the next generation as well. In other news, August is essentially over already, and here are the last rankings. Number one, the United States, rounding out this month led by Oregon, California, and New Jersey. Number two, Hong Kong, overtaking the UK and stealing the elusive number two spot. Number three, the United Kingdom holding that lead over Canada and just barely led by England. Number four, Ontario, Canada. And number five, 
Australia, with New South Wales taking the last-minute lead. That's it for this week, and this month. Have a great week, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until that next episode, please do all those things that help this show, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or on any of the social medias if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.